they trailed, it took about three years before for me to get sentenced on it. So uh, pretty much all throughout my undergrad years, I knew I was looking at 20 years to life. So I knew I was gonna be going to prison at some point in time. And we just uh, kept kind of delaying it. Um, and I was able to, to finish actually, and just uh, maybe a week or so after graduating. So when all my friends were trying to set up internships and jobs and uh, the excitement of graduating, I was in a courtroom um, looking at 20 years to life uh, and getting sentenced uh, just about a week or so after graduation. That's crazy, but there's a blessing in all this. Is up, fam. I'm Dr. Dale, the author of How to Raise a Doctor, Wizard from Parents Who Did It, the author of Black Men and White Codes, the author of Pre-Med Mondays, the author of the Dr. Doc Children series, and the author of this new bad boy that's about to come out. Some of you already have it. A doctor's got to self-publishing. So for anybody in healthcare who wants to self-publish, I got you. Click on the links below, learn how to do it, and um, we'll get you taken care of, all right? And you listen to the Black Men and White Coast podcast, the place where Black clinicians have the platform to share their stories with listeners like you, super geeked about Today's guest, super geek, and y'all gonna love it. And y'all gonna see what I mean. This is something different today, and I mean different. But before um, I tell you, tell you about that, and before we get into that, just a lot of updates in the world of black men and white coats. A whole lot of updates. Thank you guys for watching the documentary. We're constantly getting messages, posts, all sorts of stuff. Really appreciate it. And um, and the summit, the youth summits are back. Yesterday we signed three three partnership agreements. So get ready, youth summits are coming across the country for you guys. We're super excited to get those rolling again. Every day we're getting people who are looking to host summit. So, hey, we're back. Black men and white coast COVID is not stopping anything. All right. Now, you guys are here today for it's a treat, man. I'll tell you, this is different. We, we haven't had anything like this before. So I'm not going to get too much into a story. But all I'm going to say, just to make sure y'all don't leave, is today we've got Dr. Stanley and Dries. And, man, I can't even I can't even begin to tell you how good a story. I'll just say this. All right. He grew up maybe not the, the best circumstances, ended up going to prison. And now he is a PhD, MBA, faculty at Howard and um, Georgetown, I believe. And he's on a different level. Dr. Stanley Idris, welcome to Black Men and White Coast. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Doing great. Uh, glad to be here. So, man. So you know, I, I'm not. I'm not going to take up too much time. I'm going to kind of just get right into it. You've had you had a long yeah. journey, some something different in your journey. Let's go back to the beginning. And tell me, what was your what was your childhood environment like? What what things led you down that road that you ended up going towards a prison route, a route that you probably didn't want to go? Nobody wants to go. But what were those what was your environment that led you down that road? Yeah. So, uh, you know, quick intro, which, uh, you know, you, you touched on. But, uh, you know, I'm a formerly incarcerated person with three felony convictions, was sentenced to 10 years in prison as a prior persistent career criminal. I uh, was told by the prosecutor at that time that I was um, hopeless, was going to be stuck in this revolving door of incarceration. Uh, fast forward some time, as you mentioned, now Dr. Stan Andres, uh, endocrine scientist, professor at the Mecca, Howard University College of Medicine. Uh, I'm a visiting professor at, at Georgetown Medicine. Also took my hustle across seas. I'm a visiting professor at uh, Imperial College London. Um, and formerly, I was a faculty member at Johns Hopkins Medicine. So I didn't quite live up to that prophecy that the prosecutor, you know, bestowed on me in those <laughs> early days of my life, my early 20s. Um, but, you know, what my, my child, so I'm from the Ferguson, Missouri area. 
Uh, I was arrested for the first time at 14 years old, um, continued to make decisions that kind of led me deeper into the criminal legal system to that point that I was sitting in that court in my early 20s. But even before that first arrest at 14, um, you know, uh, I was, I felt and I felt as if I was already a criminal in, in many ways. I, I think my uh, schooling, I was just in and out of detention and suspension and, and conduct issues. And I, I was an athlete, you know, I, I, uh, I was a three sport athlete in high school and, you know, played sports all through my younger years. Uh, so my, my, my teachers and people of authority really saw my athletic talent, um, but didn't really foster my intellectual talent. Uh, and more so, you know, just saw me as a troublemaker, you know, kid from a, a neighborhood that's, uh, you know, has a lot of people uh, involved in, in activities that lead them into the criminal legal system. So what high school did you, you go to? St. Louis? I'm, my wife's from O'Fallon, Illinois. And I went to Missouri. <laughs> went to Missouri. So I know, I know a lot of uh, and Ferguson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I actually talk about, I talk about that in my book, uh, which, uh, you know, just to plug it real quick, I, I thought we might touch on it, but uh, the book is called From Prison Cells to PhD. It's never too late to do good. Um, and I, I could talk about the meaning a little bit later if we have time, but um, I, I, I mentioned the aspect because people know about Ferguson because of, you know, yeah. Mike Brown and uh, how he was killed in the streets. Um, and then the reports came out about the over-policing, the excessive policing, the use of force. So I, I had people pulling guns on me. I had cops pulling guns on me when I was just 14, 13 years old. Um, the high school, my, my brothers, uh, uh, I'm the youngest of five. My brothers and sisters went to uh, Hazelwood East which is, you know, in the in the Ferguson Florissant area, uh, it has its challenges. Um, a lot of a lot of NFL athletes have come out of uh, East, but um, it's not known for its intellectual uh, folks coming from, you know, the school. So uh, there, my brother got into, you know, my, my some family members got into some issues, and my parents decided to have me go down the street, uh, a school called Rosary High School. So I went to Rosary High School. Okay, so as a as a youngest of five, what kind of influence were your older siblings on? What, what kind of influences were your siblings on you? And were you somebody who was always smart? Did you want to do good? Did you were you a reader? Did you have that intellectual capacity from a young age? Um, so I, I would say that I was, you know, a lot of things in life were just um telling me who I was at, you know, at that time as, you know, a lot of young black kids, men and, you know, black boys and girls, uh, society, culture, different things kind of tell them who they should be. And, you know, those tend to sometimes have a bigger influence. Um, so for me, I, I mean, I, school, uh, I wasn't bad in school, but it was not a focus of mine. Like it was all about sports. And then, you know, I got, I, I started to get involved in the streets and and it was about sports and hustling and, and you know that it wasn't really about the books for me uh in my earlier schooling years how did how did you get involved in the streets was it was it you just walk outside and you know people probably doing that did somebody particularly come out and recruit you or did you um so you to I, the, I talk the, about this in the book as well like there was uh i had a family member that 
was um, pretty heavily into gangs, and you know he was he was a blood, and um, you know he got into a number like I would see him, uh, you know, bloodied up and beaten up, and uh, you know I see him and you know completely dressed in all red and all the the flags and the do rags and. Uh, you know, see him hanging out with this, with this, with his peoples and whatnot. Um, and so I started to, and, and I'm only, I mean, I'm, I'm under 10 years old at this day, at this age. Uh, and it, for me, I didn't see, uh, and, and, you know, I, I saw them carrying guns and things of that nature. I didn't see that as um, like, to me, they were just an older family member that it didn't uh, come across as being, a bad thing. It came across as this is what takes place in the in the area that we live in. Um, so it was almost as if instead of like being scared of it, it was something that I, I mean, this was a person that I looked up to. So in a sense, I, I was very I looked up to. Um, and so that was one of the people that I looked up to. And he was, you know, he ended up uh, getting involved in the legal system as well. Um, through you know some of the gang related things that he was that he got into. Yeah, so, so then so you get pulled into this kind of lifestyle. You do whatever you do during that lifestyle. First time you're um, in the system, somewhat is it fourteen? Is that right? Around fourteen years old or so? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the, and then when you come when you come out of that little stint, is there anything in your mind that says, "Hey, let me get on the right track," or is it still just more more of the same? Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, I, I don't want to spoiler alert because I want to tell your readers and your audience yeah. to go read the book. But, you know, I, I talk about this in the book as well. Um, and, you know, so my I end up getting, um, uh, you know, my, my, my family ends up kind of putting about an intervention. I'll, I'll, I'll put it in that way. Uh, you know, they, they do kind of I think this, there was a show called Intervention, like when family comes together, or, you mm -hmm. know, family comes together and like you got to change and I'm only 14 and the, my family kind of had this intervention uh with me um and so there was that point and I think um it did have an impact uh and then I go into talking in the book again how just some different uh social economic cultural aspects of where I live that that still drew me into uh, getting deeper into making poor decisions, and, and not not only that. Uh, I mean, to to add to that is again, you know, I was I know now what it's called. You know, it's called the school to prison pipeline. I was already being fed into this this turning machine called the school to prison pipeline, where my the authorities in my life, you know, so we know about Ferguson now and that it's primarily a black area but most of the teachers are white. Uh, most of the political uh, figures are white. The police are white. Um, so there was just the authority figures around me were telling me that I was a criminal. Um, so, you know, even with this intervention that my family, and, and, and so my, I'm Haitian. That's another big part of, you know, what I'll talk about, uh, you know, if I have a quick moment to talk about the title of the book. Uh, I guess I could just mention it right now. So the, you know, from prison cells to PhD is clearly kind of the journey that I took. And um, it's, you know, more than just the real journey that I took It's you know, the uh, metaphor behind it is 
the idea of going from this place of hopelessness, which is what the prosecutor uh, saw for me, what she prophesized as a uh, you know young black kid from where I came from, she saw hopelessness in this revolving door of incarceration and this desolate place of despair. So the book is talking about going from that place to uh, a place of feeling like you have value and worth and purpose in life. Um, so I, I talk about that journey in the book and how I went from that, you know, from point A to point B, and I use education as that vehicle. Um, but then the the other the subtitle of the book is it's never too late to do good, which um, so my family, as I mentioned, were Haitian. Uh, English was actually my second language. Uh, my family, you know, and I still speak Creole to each other. So a phrase that my dad used to always tell me was "il ne jamais pas trop tard pour faire bien," which the literal meaning is "it's never too late to do good." Uh, but the truer translation of it was what he, you know, what he was meaning is that it's never too late to reach your full potential, and it's never too late to do the right thing. Which is a, you know, I, you know, I, I ended up uh, losing my father to uh, type two diabetes. Um, uh, you know, when I when I went away and got sentenced to my 10 year sentence, um, uh, about two years into it, he went through a number of hospitalizations, surgeries, amputations to the point that he ended up losing his battle with type two diabetes, which was partially the inspiration behind um, what I do uh, as an endocrinologist now. But his phrase was this idea to him, even at my young age, he was telling me that uh, when you're ready, I believe that you can bring value to yourself and to the world. Uh, and when you're ready to do that, I'll be here waiting for you. And unfortunately, um, you know, I ended up losing him before I really had the opportunity to let him know that I began to understand that. But it's a powerful message for the criminal legal system because too often the prosecutors in the system sees black kids like myself and they throw us away and they say that, well, you know, it's your hopeless cause. Uh, but the message that he was delivering to me, I, he was like, I know you're making these decisions now, but I believe in you. I, I believe in your potential. I believe in the value you can bring. And when you're when you're ready to believe in yourself and see that in yourself, I'll, I'll be here waiting for you. Um, and so. That 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 is the uh, you know message behind uh, that he was constantly giving me, but. In my, you know, to your question about uh, how how the intervention, you know, with my family and, and different things didn't quite work at that age. And I mean, I was a teenager, um, and there were these other influences pulling me, and there were these other authoritative figures telling me that I was indeed a criminal. Whereas I had this other messaging, but I had even more messaging coming in, uh, telling me who I was. But what I love about that is all that stuff your family did for you and what your dad was telling you stuck with you deep in your heart over the years. So all that stuff never left you. Ooh. I want them bad like a daddy, yeah. Only do it like flagger, yeah. I'm kicking flame with no saga, yeah. Hey, I like them blues. I might go Janet like Jackson. I got them option, yeah. It's all about progression. Life is like a blessing. Everything a win, loss is like a lesson. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, ain't no time for stressing. I so um, fast forward, you go, you go down the system, you're in the system for, uh, I'm not sure how many years you actually served, if it was a full 10 or if it was less, but you serve your time. Um, but even before that, you had gone to college, right? 
Yeah, so uh, I was a three-sport athlete, as I was mentioning. I played football, basketball, and track. I'm a speed guy. Uh, and, I, and, you know, coincidentally, like, I, I was almost kicked out of high school on a number of occasions, but my track coach was also the disciplinary principal. So every time that I was about, you know, uh, I accumulated enough detentions and suspensions for them to actually expel me. He like pled to them to not expel me because they needed me for track. Um, So, uh, you know, only during track season. So luckily track season was the end of the year. (laughs) So by the time I accumulated all these marks against me, he was able to save me uh, before the school year ended. And then, you know, a new slate started that next school year in terms of like detentions it took to get expelled. Um, But I ended up getting a sports scholarship. I played football at Lindenwood University. Um, But by that time, by the time I got to Lindenwood, I had already been, like, I was already very deep into into hustling. And um, I ended up catching a number of, uh, I ended up catching two additional uh, cases. um, And they trailed, it took about three years before for me to get sentenced on it. So uh, pretty much all throughout my undergrad years, I, knew I was looking at 20 years to life. So I knew I was going to be going to prison at some point in time. And we just uh, kept kind of delaying it. Um, and I was able to to finish actually, and just uh, maybe a week or so after graduating. So when all my friends were trying to set up internships and jobs and uh, the excitement of graduating, I was in a courtroom um, looking at 20 years to life uh, and getting sentenced. Uh, just about a week or so after graduation. That's crazy, but there's a blessing in all this. You 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 go do your time, but somewhere along that journey, decide to change your life. You come out, and something tells you to go get your PhD and MBA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, what it uh, a, a large part of that was what I mentioned with uh, my father. Um, you know, his his health. I felt. Uh, he was he was a relatively healthy person. He had type two diabetes, and I, I was familiar with type you know with diabetes, but um, he was relatively healthy. And then you know he just went into this phase of you know his health just plummeted and in and out of the hospital. And for me, and you know being young and uh, and there's probably some truth to it. I, I feel like the stress uh, of me going away, his youngest child was played a role in that. So I, I had this, this, you know, resentment and this guilt sitting with me in this prison cell and, um, you know, losing death and dying is difficult at any stage or wherever you're at. Uh, but to go through that in prison, like the, you know, the emotional stages of grief, like feeling anger, you can't do that in prison. You can't just like lash out and be mad at somebody like that could literally get you hurt that could literally harm, put yourself in harm's way. Um, you know, I couldn't be sad and cry. Uh, that is a sign of weakness and vulnerability, which again, could bring harm my way. So I, I didn't have the opportunity to really go through the stages of grief um, and, and the emotional. So I, I, I channeled this emotional distress uh, into wanting to learn more about diabetes. So I read my first scientific article on diabetes while I was uh, locked in a cage. Um, And it was, you know, it offered me this opportunity that although my body was locked in this prison cell, uh, my mind was roaming around 
in the human cell. And that offered me the opportunity to be free. So I was, you know, my body was locked up, but my mind was free. And I would, I mean, you're, you, you know, you're a doctor, obviously, and, and you've read plenty of scientific articles, I'm sure. And you know that every other word is something that you've never heard of, you know, yeah. every other word besides A, uh, the, and is um, some alphabet soup. And we didn't have the dictionaries to learn that alphabet soup. So I would just, you know, spend hours, days, weeks, even months on one scientific article. And that, that allowed me one to like fall in love with learning about the cell, um, but also just freed my mind. So that was this epiphany that really pulled me out and said, I want to do something different. Um, and I was also fortunate enough to have this mentor step into my life at that same time that really saw my intellectual potential um, and started investing in that and really pushing for me to continue my education. Um, so I, I ended up putting together a number of applications while I was still inside um, and was, you know, months and months to put these together. And, you know, just all of them were rejected except for the one um, from St. Louis University where I, this mentor that stepped into my life uh, was uh, on the admissions committee. So I got in and it was, you know, it was a wrap. I ended up completing my PhD, MBA, top of my class in much shorter time than, than my peers. Moved on to Hopkins, you know, here at the Mecca, Georgetown, Imperial. Uh, but along the way, you know, ended up starting a nonprofit called uh, From Prison Cells to PhD. Um, and we run a program called Prison to Professionals, where, you know, I basically was taking notes along the way, like how, why are so many of us, 75% of people that step out of prison end up stepping back into prison. Um, but if you just put uh, education under your belt, you drop that recidivism rate down to the teens. And the more education you put under your belt, the less chance it is. So, I mean, we I basically took notes and, you know, we've now created a roadmap for folks um, to help them stay out of prison and take them from that A to B and use, use education as that vehicle. I love it. So for the listeners, right, I'm going to make it so y'all got to go get the book to get the rest of the story, right? Y'all got to go get the book. So I'm going to give you the last word. And um, I, I'd love for you to end it with, my name is Dr. Stanley Andreessen. I'm a black man in the white coat. And also one last time, tell them the name of your book, tell them the name of your yeah. um, the website to your, your nonprofit, your program, yeah. and whatever else, your hashtags, all that type of stuff handles. Yeah, so uh, the name of the book, as well as the organization, is From Prison Cells to PhD. Uh, you can find the book on any of your outlets, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, From Prison Cells to PhD. It's never too late to do good. Um, I am Dr. Stanley Andres, and I am a black man in a white coat. Ain't no time for stressing, I've been really stepping. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, if you want to go 